In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Today is the second Sunday of Mashir, but it's also the eighth day of Mashir, um, which allows us to uh, remember one of the 14 feasts of the Lord. As you may know, there are seven major feasts and seven minor feasts in our church. The seven major ones are seven events in the gospel of Christ that have to deal directly with something that Christ did that directly impacted our salvation. And the seven minor feasts are those uh, seven events also in the gospel that reveal something about who Christ is, which of course, as we learn more about him, also impacts our salvation. So today's uh, commemoration is uh, one of the seven minor feasts, which is the presentation of our Lord into the temple as this icon here that we have next to us is showing. Um, the story goes about how St. Joseph and St. Mary brought the child Jesus to perform the obligation of the Old Testament law, namely the circumcision, uh, which we celebrated. That is also a minor feast of the Lord, the circumcision of Christ, which uh, happened a couple weeks ago. And, and today we celebrate the presentation of, of Christ into the temple as the firstborn uh, son who um, was born of St. Mary. We, call up, uh, we can pull out many Old Testament beneficial meanings from the Old Testament regarding what circumcision is and what the presentation of the Lord is. So we'll go into that a little bit. Regarding the circumcision of the Lord, since we didn't really have a chance to talk about that, circumcision was a commandment uh, to the Jewish people as a visible seal in the Old Testament to separate them from the rest of the people uh, in the world, right? So we they were surrounded by all sides, by pagan uh, worship and by uh, idolatry uh, around every nation, and the mo and the immorality that accompanied uh, a lot of those pagan uh, cultures. If you read about it, they did a lot of immoral things that we would, in our society, uh, a Judeo-Christian society, we would say and you know, we would frown upon, of course. So they were by themselves, and so as a visible seal to separate them from among all the other nations of the world, he instituted the, uh, the uh, commandment of circumcision. So that's one thing, is it's a visible seal to separate us from the rest of the world. God isn't often impressed with the numbers of people that are not worshiping versus those who are worshiping him. Oftentimes in history, only a few followed Christ, only a few followed God and worshiped him. Um, or even aware of his presence. In times of Noah, for example, very few worshipped God at that time. And in the times of Sodom and Gomorrah, not even ten righteous people were found in those two cities, so that God had to destroy those two cities. Even in Israel, um, Israel of all countries, right, during parts of its history, they even gave in to the pressures of worshipping the, idol the idolatry and pagan gods. There was one point in, in 1 Kings chapter 19 that says, Yet I have reserved... 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not fallen to Baal. So of all the nation, only 7,000 knees, right? So if you divide that by two, because everyone typically has two knees, uh, that's about, you know, what, 3,500 people. And, and that includes children, women, and men as well. So oftentimes we're called to be different from the society. No matter how society uh, veers towards the wrong path, we are called to be different. Oftentimes when you look at the history of our our 2,000-year-old uh, church, right? When has our church ever existed in a society that was um, beneficial for us and that favored us or, or uh, granted us favors, right? That was never a time. We often, we were always dwelling in a society, whether it's in Egypt or elsewhere, you know, in a, in a place where it's not 
uh, congruent to Christian way of thinking or it's not friendly towards Christianity at all. So we're called to be different. We're called to be separated uh, from the crowds practicing unrighteousness. Sometimes, however, we do get carried away with the, with the tide and we do the same things as those around us. But God has called us and put his seal on us that um, we are different people with loftier and more majestic goals in our life. And oftentimes we are alone, whether it be at work or whether it be sometimes even in our own families and sometimes uh, in society as a whole and sometimes even in church that we oftentimes are alone doing God's will. And we shouldn't be uh, sad with that, right? We're often alone with him. We stand alone with the alone. We stand alone with the alone and we, sh and we wouldn't have it any other way. Um, there's a tradition uh, in, in like back in the day when like the Muslims used to persecute Christians, they used to force a tattoo on uh, as, as the, on the cops as little children, right, on their wrists. And what later, but you know, little did they know that that same badge would become a badge of honor for Christians, right, and that we would do so willingly. And I like that tradition. I don't have one, but maybe one day we'll all go to Egypt and we'll get those tattoos on our wrists as well. Um, secondly, regarding circumcision, as in the case of the Old Testament, um, generally we can pull out deeper meanings from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is saturated with what is called allegorical or typological or symbolic meanings that point to deeper meanings uh, that affect us today, pointing to the work of Jesus Christ, his church, the calling of the Gentiles, the sacraments, or, the, or generally speaking, the Christian spirituality. Here's circ circumcision prefigured baptism. To be included as part of God's people back then, you needed to be circumcised. Here, in today's time, to be included with our church, you need to be baptized. Becoming part of the church, which is, of course, the body of Christ. Not just figuratively, because he, you know, we are the body of life figuratively, the body of Christ. Uh, but literally as well, because we eat of the Eucharist and that Eucharist is his body. We eat of that body and we become one body together, which is why the church, um, you know, on earth is the same as the church in heaven. So when somebody passes away, that church is not conquered by death, right? They're still members of the church. We are that body of Christ is not conquered by death because that body of Christ resurrected from the dead. And because it resurrected from the dead, we know that we as his body were also resurrected from the dead. And when we lose someone, we know that we haven't really lost them. That is indeed, uh, they're alive more than us, and that is our faith, right? Um, it is one church, one body, and it conquers death, which is why we call our church the church militant. We're struggling, we're fighting against Satan, we're fighting against an evil world, we're fighting against our own selves, which sometimes we are our own worst enemy. Um, and then the church in heaven, of course, is the church triumphant. They're the victorious church. But of course, it's all still one church. That's why intercession is a natural consequence of our faith. Um, it's not just some theological or theoretical point that uh, we, we say, but it's something very practical. In Colossians uh, 1, it says, And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church, and for the sake of his body, which is the church. So in Ephesians chapter 1, he and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body and the fullness of him who fills all in all. And in Romans, as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 
having then gifts deferring according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. So no matter what function we have in the church, we're all just members of one body, just like a body has different members and has different functions, um, whether it's a priest or a deacon or a congregation, man, woman, children, it doesn't matter. We're all still one body. St. Ignatius defines the church as the Christians united together around the bishops and the priests. And St. Augustine, who is a bishop, he said, I am a bishop for you, but after all is said and done, I am a Christian with you. We're all Christians. We're all one body together. We're all one family. So that if we are one family, we should be caring for one another, uh, world, uh, whether, whether it be our worldly needs, you know, maybe our, somebody's going through some kind of struggle. We have to be there in support for each other. We have to um, also be responsible for each other's salvation, right? More than our worldly needs is we're responsible for each other's salvation. We have to be welcoming to others and having that fellowship. And that is very important, especially where we live. We were talking earlier today after uh, a couple of blessed baptisms that, that San Diego is like the cul-de-sac, America's cul-de-sac, right? Because we're kind of nestled against the border and against the ocean and the mountains and Camp Pendleton. So we're kind of all by ourselves. So we are our, each other's family. Most of us have family that live elsewhere. So we're kind of closer together. That's why I love this church. Is very, uh, it, it has its own kind of spirit in that everyone kind of works together as, as family members indeed. Uh, it's active participation as well. To being members of a body, you have to be functioning. And so service is a critical element of being part of the church. Uh, there are a lot of opportunities to serve in the church. Service helps you more than it helps those you serve. You actually benefit more than those whom you serve. So all are responsible for the health and vibrancy of the church. And that, that's a member of the church that we get through baptism, just like in the Old Testament they got through, um, through circumcision. Once baptized, you're involved in every aspect of the church um, and with humility, of course, because you'll learn as you go like we all are learning as we go. Baptism unites those who are born again into the body of Christ. We died with Christ in baptism, and we rose again out of the water with a new creation. Our bodies and our minds and our spirits are created anew. And uh, just like we had before the fall of Adam and Eve when uh, that happened many, many, many years ago. The church becomes our mother and God is our father. And all of this is possible, of course, by baptism. The third thing we gain from the, the symbol of uh, circumcision is a, it's a symbol of new life. Uh, it's putting away the old man and letting it die, living in the new and more blessed and joyous life. In him you were also, this is in Colossians, St. Paul writes, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, which is also why circum the circumcision of our Lord uh, was practiced on the eighth day, which is the eighth day, of course, uh, after Christ was resurrected on the eighth day. He constantly calls us to a new life. That's how, you know, our, our faith is that we are often called to look away from our past and look forward to a bright new future. He makes our future new every day to begin a life full of new, renewed blessings in our life. Uh, just like St. Paul says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, 
and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in God in Christ Jesus. Christ is always calling us to have a more majestic life, a more holy life, the life that we were meant to live, right? He's eager to put away from us our sins of our past and put them far away from us and accepting us as his children, eager to have us live that life that we were meant to live, uh, that he wants us to live with uh, peace and security and, and safety and success, especially all those things related to the spiritual life. There are points in our lives where God reveals himself to us. Uh, in a very clear way. And we should be very sensitive to that call to live that new life and to start over and to look no more to the past, but always look to the future. We should be sensitive to those personal messages. And he sends it to us again and again, sometimes gently, sometimes harshly, right? But always with the goal of bringing us back to his bosom, to his uh, loving embrace. The story continues after the circumcision and the time of St. Mary uh, days of purification, which of course was 40 days, were completed that they took the child Jesus into the temple and presented him to, uh, to the uh, priests uh, as the firstborn from St. Mary. And of course, that's the feast that we celebrate today. And to St. Mary and St. Joseph's surprise and amazement, um, this prophet comes in uh, actually two saintly figures come in and they entered into the scene and began to proclaim God's glory. First, Simeon. So as we read today in the Senexarium, St. Simeon um, miraculously like was given an extra long life, right? A few hundred, like a couple hundred years, 300 years or so. It's said that he was one of the people who translated the uh, 70, uh, with the other 70 scholars in Alexandria, translated the Hebrew Bible for the first time into another language, the language of the world back then, kind of like how, how English is today. It was Greek back then. So uh, it was translated into Greek, and that allowed the Hebrew Bible to kind of spread throughout the world much quicker. So that's called the Septuagint Bible. Septuagint means 70. Um, and he was one of those 70. When he came to the spot uh, where he was trying to write uh, about the virgin's birth, uh, you know, that virgin would give birth to a child, he struggled with that. And he was afraid that Ptolemy would make fun of him or kind of chastise him, like, how can you write such a thing? He was kind of embarrassed at the translation. But uh, God revealed to him that, don't worry, you're going to see this happen in your lifetime. Uh, write it as you are supposed to translate it. So he does so. Being filled with a measure of the Holy Spirit, he sees the child and says... Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Once he encountered Christ, he was ready to die, and, and tradition has it that he died that very day. Um, but once he saw Christ and encountered Christ, he received utter contentment, right? He, utter, utter peace, and that he was ready to even die that day. He's like, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. That's how we are as well. When we truly encounter Christ, we become very content uh, to the point where, you know, we're happy with whatever befalls us, even death. He says that the child will bring light and salvation to the world, that he's destined to uh, bring the fall and rising of many in Israel. Um, and he says he's destined for a sign. He says he's destined for a sign which will be spoken of. And will we be spoken against? And that sign, of course, is the cross. And so he prophesied when the, the Christ was still a child, right? Still barely a baby. 
um, before he could even walk, that he would he prophesied that he's destined for a sign that will be spoken against. And of course, that sign is the cross. Um, then he turns to St. Mary and says something really interesting. He says, yes, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. That while witnessing Christ on the cross, her heart would be broken as if a sword would pierce her soul and pierce her heart. St. Mary marveled in these same verses. It says, Mary kept all these things in her heart. It says in other verses that she kept and pondered all these things in her heart. Surely she committed these things to memory. So when you fast forward to, for example, the wedding of Cana, where they had no wine, and she went to Jesus saying, they have no wine. And he said, woman, my time has not yet come. She insisted and said, let it, and told the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. She knew very well what that meant, that this miracle would become public, that it would initiate his three-year ministry, which would change the world and give us these life-giving uh, teachings and miracles, and the world would never be the same. But she also knew another thing. She remembered what St. Simeon said here, that a, pierce would, uh, that a sword would pierce through your heart as well. She knew that the initiation and the service of our Lord Jesus Christ would bring her pain unimaginable. And yet she did so anyways with courage. Um, she exemplified that good parent that never hinders their children from salvation, even to the point of them suffering to a degree. Or even being inconvenienced a little bit to bring them to Vespers or to bring them to deacon's classes or to bring them to Sunday school. You know, even to that point where St. Mary was willing to even have a, a sword pierced through her soul so that um, her child can do what is right. Uh, St. Simeon's words were in mind and a sword would pierce her heart. So again, it's an example of her courage. Then immediately after that, Immediately after St. Simeon says these like awe-inspiring words and prophetic words, and while St. Joseph and St. Mary are still in amazement, St. Anna comes in, right? So Anna comes in and begins to speak. Her name, Hannah, means grace in um, Hebrew, and this is exactly what she was about to preach, that the grace of the Lord is now here and that we would all experience it. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She became one of the first evangelists um, in the world, right? And uh, it's interesting, you know, the women always have a, a very important role in evangelism, right? Who was the first person to proclaim the resurrection of Christ? It was St. Mary, right? Magdalene. Uh, preaching and witnessing to others has very nice qualities that we can learn from St. Anna, even from these very few verses that we spoke about here today. First of all, it's voluntary. No one commanded her to go and preach, right, or to speak to anyone. She couldn't help it. It was just, it came as a natural consequence. It comes from that desire to share something that is special. When, what, when one watches, for example, a sports event, right? And you, you see an amazing move that, you know, like Kobe Bryant used to do, right? Or something like that. Or Michael Jordan. Uh, I don't know who's new these days, but uh, like if we watch a football game and something amazing happened, the next day at work, what do you do about it? You talk about it, right? You can't help but to speak about it. Um, or when you taste like a really nice dessert, you have to talk about how great this dessert is at this restaurant and you start sharing it with people. 
um, or you hear a great song by some artist, right? The first thing you want to do is talk about this artist and how this uh, song that you heard was amazing and you want to share it. It just comes naturally. No one tells you to do it, right? Um, it's the same way when we truly encounter the sweetness of Christ, you know, the living with him. We can't help but to speak about him. It's not something that needs to be commanded of us, although it is. But if it didn't, we'd still want to do it. The apostles, when hearing the great command and that great commission for them to preach all over the world, they didn't need that command. That command was not really an obligation for them to go preach. It was more of an affirmation of what they really, really wanted to do because they couldn't contain themselves of the things that they saw and witnessed and heard that in Christ's life, the amazing things that he did. They couldn't. They wanted to go out and preach to the whole world, and God said, "Okay, go." And like they're like, "Yes," and they went, you know, freely, and voluntarily. Second, it needs to be liturgical, and what I mean by that, it needs to be from a life living inside the church, preaching within the context of like a community worship. Right? We speak about what we experience in that worship, in that Christian lifestyle, and that worship. You can't not live the Christian lifestyle and then preach about Christian lifestyle. So St. Anna, it says about her that she was in the temple for 84 years. That, um, that proclaimed her uh, kind of holiness and her prayer, always giving herself to prayer and holiness in, in worship. 84 years, she didn't depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers, night and day. Thirdly, witnessing needs to be with the goal of bringing the hearers closer to God through prophecy, rebuke, or even calls to justice or holiness. That is what Anna did when she spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption. Finally, we need to lean on the Holy Spirit, understanding the good news of Scripture as revealed in the Scripture, teaching others, and under, uh, we, it needs us to understand it first. But understanding is, comes from God. It's the same Holy Spirit that inspired the Holy Scriptures that allows us to understand the Holy Scriptures. As St. Gregory the Wonder Worker says, no one can understand the prophets unless the Spirit who inspired the prophets himself gives him understanding of his word. The Holy Spirit gives power to listen to God and understand what he said and then to explain it to men that they too might understand. So God grant us the spiritual circumcision and to be presented also to the temple, that heavenly temple of the Lord, uh, which we all received at baptism to live in that newness of life, to forget the past and to live uh, looking forward and to proclaim the good news of the message of our Lord Jesus Christ to whoever we encounter through our actions first and through our words second, to whom be glory forever. Amen.